was interesting yesterday. I went on the internet and looking at pictures for Stephen Wyeth and Rory Smith. Oh, sorry, and I need to do you. Your absolute beauties in there. Beauties. Stephen, you in particular came Just up. Just did a Google was, image search. Yes, and there was a one with Steve with a, two huge men and a massive trophy that you were holding on to. I, I wasn't that interested was, enough to find out what, what it was all that about. Was the but Super it, League tro- that was the Super League uh, grand final trophy, Chinch. And there was two Those, big men alongside yeah, were, you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> brothers who play for Warrington Wolves. Uh, okay. who, who were you playing for at the time, Steve? The Monaghan brothers. Uh, possibly. No, I was, uh, I was playing for Keithley Cougars at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a, t- a rugby league team made up of attractive Steve older women. Be, Steve would be one of those ratty scrum halves like Rob Burrow, wouldn't he? He'd be one of those, you know, grabbing the nuts and that kind of thing because physically he's, he's going to be overpowered by the rest of the players. So if you they, have to make up for it in another way. That's what he'd be That's what the kind of player he'd be. If they did a, the Real Housewives of West Yorkshire, the subtitle would be the Keithley Cougars. Yeah, there's a reason that series hasn't happened, I think. <laughs> As we all know, it's, it's in not, production. Stephen is not the... Uh, the, the Wyeth who we should worry about on any sort of sporting field. It's Dave Wyeth that we should worry about. Dave Wyeth would be the dirty rugby league player. Won't be grabbing all sorts of um, inappropriate parts of their their opponents. Yeah, but Dave Wyeth is a man who likes it. to win. <laughs> At yeah. all costs. Yeah. Surely there is only one inappropriate area of a man to grab. Um, if someone on tweaked man, your nose at a corner, would you be mortally offended? Did anyone ever pull your armpit hair at a corner, Chinch? How long was Chinch's armpit hair? In Sunday League at corners, you quite mm. often will get someone who'll try and have a little tweak of your armpit hair as it hurts. Did that happen yeah, in a professional game? I shave all my armpit hair off. Why, why would you have you long are, armpit hair? You are famously a... as smooth as a seal. <laughs> Manscaping. It's the modern football is manscaped. So well, you won't have long armpit hair. And you want to be not, careful. I, I wouldn't go for that. I wouldn't go for the armpit hair. You want to be careful suggesting that the modern footballer is manscaped because there will be a 4,000-word athletic article on it within <laughs> two or three weeks. Let's hope so. And, Let's and hope so. how much they manscaped in 1999. Chinch, what was, the, what was the part of you that was grabbed the most often? Um, the collar by any of my coaches to pull me off the pitch. <laughs> to say, hang on a minute, you're meant to be a footballer. You're clearly not. Get off. So that's what I'd say. My collar has been felt a lot, but not by the law. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food whilst in lockdown. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, whose sanctioned daily exercise is walking the dog. Stephen Wyeth, whose sanctioned daily exercise is cycling with his children. And Andy Hinchcliffe, whose sanctioned daily exercise is a Zoom call with Wow Wow, because the only thing he's locking down are those abs. Am I right, Chinch? Am I right? Am I right, Chinch? I've been using my flexi bands because I don't have a, a home gym. I don't have weights at home. But I have flexi bands, which are the future people. They are brilliant. Are they a type of trouser for the middle-aged spread, gentlemen? <laughs> they they double up. You can use them as elasticated trousers, or you can use them to do your uh, to do your bicep curls. Uh, the food is an amazing banana and pecan cake, which I made for all of us, but I'm going to eat all myself because there's no way you can get to it. So sorry about that. And the football is Chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Oh yeah. It's a, it's a football-related topic, a hot topic, a timeless topic. What is it? Well, we will be raising a collective eyebrow, most likely to heights only Carlo Ancelotti can reach, at the prospective takeover at Newcastle United. We'll ask who, why now, and will the likely negative notices in some parts lead to any soul-searching, either within a Premier League hierarchy or indeed the Toon Army? That is to come shortly but you can get in touch with the podcast set piece menu at gmail.com is our email address you can find us on twitter and facebook and the debate about the spm european super league continues not least between correspondents from mexico and scotland 
Graham Stephen was the emailer from the latter on last week's pod. You'll remember he was espousing the virtues of Rangers inclusion rather than Celtic. Uh, He's back and he says this. I can confirm that, unlike Stephen Graham, I am indeed tall and not scouse. I also don't have his money. I would just like to add that there is something ironic in Gustavo, your correspondent from Mexico, claiming that no one there could name a Scottish team when the same could be said of his own country's clubs. This is turning into an international incident. If one was to ask a UK-based football fan to list South American teams, most would be able to name the giants of Brazil and Argentina, but very few would be able to name a Mexican side. We Scots are well used to the pub league slur, but just because we lack worldwide TV coverage, that, that does not mean that we should be ruled out. Both of the old firm sides have worldwide followings and passionate support that would rival any club in the world, says Graham Stephen. Yeah, that's true. I think that I think most Mexican fans would be would have heard of Celtic and Rangers, definitely. In the same way that most Mexican fans will have heard of PSV Eindhoven. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's not it's not so ridiculous to think that they might have heard of a team from a smaller nation and a left maybe. In the same token, as I think most Scottish fans will have heard of at least one or two Mexican teams. Well, the Mexican, fans, well the Mexican fans have heard of FC Copenhagen because <laughs> they are yeah. they are one of the yeah. European giants. They they Although, clearly would have heard of them. Interestingly, Chinch, Mexico is a fascinating football culture in the sense that it's actually really strangely uh, isolated. Should like we go there and re- do an article? Should we go together? I'd, I would love to go to Mexico to watch some football and to investigate Mexico's kind of weird position where it doesn't really kind of refer to any, any other tradition of football. They don't traditionally like export players to Europe, although you get little kind of waves of Mexican players coming. Um, they take a lot from Argentina... They, for a while, they were kind of the first port of call for, for the Argentinian players who weren't immediately good enough to get to Europe. Uh, but they've, they, they have this kind of strange isolationist approach. Well, I say strange. Basically, it's a big, quite rich country. The players are paid quite a lot. And for a long time, the Mexican Federation made it clear that players who were playing abroad maybe wouldn't be selected for the national team. And being selected for the national team is quite a big thing. Uh, so most players tended to stay at home. I find Mexico really interesting. But even then, uh, I think they've probably heard of Celtic and Rangers. Yeah, they are all major reasons why I would love to go to Mexico. But we'll also go when the weather's tremendous. So I could put on my budgie smugglers and, and get a bit of a tan as well. Ch- and we could obviously charge it down to the, the set-piece menu budget, which, of course, is, is massive these days. I think set-piece menu live from Tulum would be really nice. I think we should do that. Uh, so is Tulum in Mexico? It is. It's oh, in, good. Yeah, yeah I, I knew that. I knew that. Yes, worth checking. That was that was Graham Stephen, who was trying to talk about uh, Scottish clubs, who ended up talking all about Mexican clubs. So Gustavo uh, will think that he won that one, even by not getting in touch. Also, on the subject of the SPM ESL, we had an email from Christopher Orr, who is in Chicago. It is entitled "Multivariant Analysis of Potential Clubs for a European Super League." It is an extraordinary piece of work, mainly because we put a pot out about this subject and didn't do anything like this kind of research. Christopher has put together a comprehensive analysis of who might be most suited to a place in any European Super League. He has brought together data on UEFA coefficients, trophy success, size of market, revenue, attendance figures, historical significance, even per capita GDP numbers of the countries in which they reside, and then collated them all to give 98 teams a score out of five. It's so detailed, it is quite impossible to relate it all to you now. So with Christopher's permission, we'll be putting something out on social media to let others take a look. And you know how in maths you get marks for showing you working? Well, Christopher gets 100%. For that, even though it shows that AC Milan and Crystal Palace get the same number of points in his system. So thank you, Christopher. 
he basically took our opinion and applied science to it to prove that we were wrong, which is kind of how science works versus opinion, isn't it? It was very That's impressive. The, and it did. The general just, it was that. very impressive. But I would have thought that if you reach a conclusion where AC Milan and Crystal Palace are the same, you should immediately go back and check your working. On other matters, Asi Modi has got in touch following our recent two-parter about football conversations between fans and then between fans and the media. Asim says this. Hi, Steve. I am a huge Hello. fan of the pod. It remains a must-listen, and the timelessness makes it an ideal companion to a current quarantine life of repetitive chores and building IKEA furniture. I really enjoyed the pods on the relationship between the media and fans and wanted to raise a related point. I completely agree that partisanship can obscure truth, but it doesn't follow that partisanship inherently doesn't equal truth. In particular, as an Arsenal fan, my main source of news and features isn't necessarily the New York Times, ridiculous or the guardian or the official club website it's arse blog and amy lawrence at the athletic between the broadsheet journalists and the arsenal full life twitter eggs lie avowedly partisan blogs and podcasts who are well connected and share news and thoughts on the club both good and bad they complement the mainstream media and i think it would be healthy for the media and fans to acknowledge that there is inevitably a gap between the coverage that a journalist like rory can provide of your club and the total perspective of what is actually happening at your club. When you cover leagues across the world, how can you expect a journalist to know that? For example, the assistant to the academy director has a ferret who can spot a cultured left foot or a howitzer of a shot. In short, while tribalism as a term is too often used to excuse mouth-breathing knuckle-dragging, partisanship shouldn't be used to necessarily dismiss something as untrue or unhinged. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the, that the rise of the fan media has been really healthy in terms of trying to build on the fanzine scene of the 70s and 80s and I guess early 90s and now yeah there's outlets outlets like like Arsblog that are legitimate for, for fans who want to go into that much detail about their teams and for whom that is their their primary concern which is completely legitimate I'm not kind of dismissing that they are there are some brilliant fan media outlets out there that do that that do function as a compliment yeah I mean I obviously it's just me and Tarek. Like we can't, we can't provide you with in-depth analysis of Arsenal all the time. But even the Nationals, I think, would struggle with that because it's it's one person who normally has two or three different remits and what have you. Local papers obviously struggling, and the fan media, in a football sense, has kind of has kind of risen to fill that gap. So no, it's really valuable. If yeah, if I was an Arsenal fan, I would also make sure Arsblog was or something like that was was on my um my regular rotation it's been so successful hasn't it fan media that you've actually seen in plenty of cases local established media seeing that almost more as a rival than than the national media or or the clubs themselves a lot of a lot of national a lot of local papers local publications you feel now target their audience in the same way as fan media does with an awful lot of positive content that they're trying to draw supporters in with it's quite depressing to see really august publications and, and the two that just spring to mind are the echo in liverpool and the evening news in manchester that have essentially become fanzines and i don't i don't really understand why that is it, it's it's like steve says it's obviously like a like a marketing decision to say right so we've got these these hugely successful fan outlets let's get some of that traffic i would have thought that it would have been equally successful to say we are in a position where we need to hold these clubs to account as much as possible. We will be fair on them, obviously, but we're also going to not be afraid to ask the tough questions. Just fans don't necessarily ask the tough questions. And maybe maybe detached journalists from, from nationals or in major international news outlets only ask the, the tough questions and don't necessarily provide enough of the coverage of the other stuff. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that is the, the media strategy I would deploy if I was in charge of either of, of those outlets. They're not the only ones. Everyone else has done it as well. Um, 
but for some reason they seem to have decided that that is the that's the road they want to go down to the extent i saw someone describe the echo now as basically a liverpool fanzine with uh some local politics attached which i think is actually quite a good way of, of describing the position of most local papers it's also tough i think to find a source which is which is trusted equally by fans i.e the consumer and by peers, i.e. the rest of the media. It's very difficult to find yeah. um, a source which managed to tick both those boxes. Um, also from Asim, two suggestions for a manager most likely to that is not Sean Dyche, Graham Potter or Nigel Pearson. Here they are. Manager most likely to be H on the next series of Line of Duty, Neil Warnock. And manager most <laughs> likely to watch Friends and agree with Ross that he and Rachel were indeed on a break, Frank Lampard. Uh, best wishes and hope everyone remains safe and healthy. That's from Asim Modi. Thank you, Asim. Uh, finally, in a theme that seems to be developing uh, during lockdown, we finish with something from a buffalo. This is from our New York correspondent, Ray George. Gents, it was a pleasure to hear you all this morning on SPM 174. I echo the sentiments from Simon, who put it far more eloquently than I ever could. I have found that without my morning slash evening NYC subway rides due to the lockdown, I am slower to catch up on your pod. But I can't begin to tell you how comforting it is to hear the discussion of hair care, Lego aptitude, homeschooling challenges, lunch rituals and patio development, in addition to the excellent perspectives on the new unknown normal facing the Premier League and football overall. One of the topics touched on during the pod, says Ray, was the uh, challenges of both spouses working at home and trying to maintain your collective sanity. To that end, I offer one suggestion that my wife and I are using, which I shamelessly stole from a random Twitter post. We have created a fictional home employee named Cheryl. With apologies to the many wonderful Cheryls out there, anytime one of us is stressed out from work or annoyed by the other's behavior, we blame it all on Cheryl. It's gotten to the point where I just walk by my wife, shake my head and say, F***ing Cheryl. And she nods knowingly and says, I know what you mean. Anything to help us all get through this with our sanity and marriages intact. Be well and stay healthy. That's from Ray. Is Cheryl the North American equivalent of a Karen then? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Is it a Karen? I'm not entirely yeah. sure. I was thinking it was well, a This Steve. has become a thing, isn't it? And I know a Karen is, you know, the office person that everybody blames for everything, I think. We, we already have a, an equivalent. I'm fairly sure of that. In, in Steve's house, that character is played by Steve. <laughs> yes. Uh, the role of Karen will today be filled by. Uh, yes, setpiecemenu at gmail.com for all your correspondence. Thank you very much indeed. So to our subject today, which was summed up in a message sent to our WhatsApp group by a certain Rory Smith, thusly. Something, something Saudi, something, something sports washing. Now, far be it for us Neanderthals to suggest that Mr. Swift's eloquence switch has been turned to the off position for the first time in his career. But this was nevertheless a slightly crude way into the conversation that then followed and will now take place in audio form. Newcastle United after a troubled 13 years under the ownership of Mike Ashley, appear to be in the final stages of a takeover. A group of investors backed by Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund have rustled up the odd £300 million to buy a club that fans would claim because of Ashley's reign has languished in the doldrums for too long. You can therefore appreciate their excitement, especially when you consider the, the success achieved by Manchester City, owned by a different state in the Middle East, whose takeover at the Etihad was indeed facilitated by the same businesswoman brokering the Newcastle deal. But in an era when sports washing, the attempt by a country with a troubling human rights record to raise their global profile through owning sports teams or hosting and promoting sporting events is a concern to many, should there really be a sense of optimism 
at St. James's Park. And if this is indeed a time when football and the Premier League in particular should maybe consider being a little bit more circumspect with their financial decision making, as discussed on the pod last week, does the prospect of a new owner with a fund worth around 300 billion run counter to a possible tightening of the belts in the near future? So, in short, something something Saudi, something something sports washing. Now, before we start, can I just say, so we're obviously recording this on Zoom like everybody now does everything. Hugh is sitting in his uh, piano room, which I don't know, just for the, for the listeners, is a sort of grand hall in which there is like a Steinway in the middle. It doesn't touch one of the walls. It's this huge hall. The acoustics are perfect. It's, I mean, it's a conservatory combined with a, with a concert hall. Steve appears to be in some sort of dungeon. I'm in my bedroom. But Chinch is standing up. And because he's got quite big headphones on and a microphone in front of him, I'm, it's really hard to look at him and not think he's about to close his eyes and just belt into like a heartfelt, heartfelt rendition of I Will Survive. It's, it's really I, I distracting. I a bit more like Liam Gallagher. If I put my hands behind my back, do you not feel as a, a Liam Gallagher? Okay, an, an intellectual Liam Gallagher. That, that's the look I was really going for. But I can't bring a dining room chair into my utility room. I was told to go to a smaller room because I've got a new microphone by Ferris. So the smallest room in my house, apart from the lavatory, I'm not going in there. I know what happens in there. I'm in my utility room. So, and I'm not bringing, on principle, I'm not bringing a dining room chair into my utility room. Why? The Italian stylings of the dining room chair are incongruous with the surroundings, the pine surroundings of the utility room. It's not happening, Rory. So you're going to stand up for an hour because of the feng shui? <laughs> oh, no. What? Stand up for an hour? For a whole hour? I'm going to have to stand yeah. up. That's, that's just crazy. Too long no to one can up. do that. No, well, at my age, maybe it is. But I'm doing some... I'm do, while you're talking, I'm doing some, some, some squats, some pulses. I'm tightening the buttocks every time you use the word the... So I'm doing every time you move, tightening. it makes me think of Nelly and it's getting hot in here, which makes me think you're about to rap. <laughs> I need a plaster on my face, though, don't I? Which you I do, don't you would, have. to be like Oh, Nelly. I need a balaclava on to cover the obvious problem that I have. Uh, anyway, that's, that's distracting me, so can, I, I can can't guarantee that I'll make any sense. Well, it's important that I uh, say that this used to be the piano room, but because my wife needs a desk because she is working from home, the piano was jettisoned from the <gasps> piano room, so it is no longer a piano room, it is an office. The piano, the piano sits idly in the corridor. Uh, or hallway, okay. as most normal people would sort of call it. I mean, I, I don't think any, any of us had ever seen you play the piano, Hugh. Obviously, I just do it for appearances, and I have no intention yeah. of ever playing. I'm not going to play you my music. My music isn't, is, is way beneath any sort of uh, cultural taste that you would uh, all the, profess to have. And what's the story with the Liberace picture behind you? What's, what's happening? Is he your hero? I say office, I mean shrine. Shrine to Liberace, excellent. you got his dress sense anyway. My, my big question with the with the takeover of Newcastle. Well, it's, I've kind of got a question and a, and a problem. My problem is I can't quite work out how to put the two news events together and what, the connect, what their juxtaposition tells us. So you have, on the one hand, the, the fact that we've all spent three weeks criticising football teams for taking government money, but now apparently it's fine for a football club to take another government's money and quite a lot more of it. That's apparently good and we should celebrate it. But also that kind of connection between um, this idea that football is now, we've seen inside, we've seen behind the curtain, and we know that football actually isn't that rich, but at the same time, it's now welcoming in this vast sum of money with, with open arms, that there's no problem that yet another state is going to own a football team. I think it'd be really easy for the Premier League just to have a rule that said you, you can't be a country and own a club. That would be really simple. 
But if it's a sovereign see... investment fund, is that how they get around that? Because it is an investment fund like they would suggest, I would imagine, like any other, like, like you would have a hedge fund, for example. But it is directly related to that country's... The, 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 the primary source of the, of the money in that fund is that country's government. And I think that, I mean, it would be, yeah, there's, there's presumably ways around it, but at least you could have the principle, like we, we, we do not approve of, of, of nation states owning football teams. It just seems like such a, do you know what? It's not even a moral argument about human rights records, although obviously that is a huge thing. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it's, it the problem, the country that are looking to invest? Do you know what? I think I'd have a problem. I'd have a problem if like Norway decided it wanted to buy Norwich. Okay. Well, it would alliterate, and that's something that we can also. It would. I mean, it it might. I mean, the first four letters are the same. It would be, if anything, that the brand synergy is perfect between Norway and Norwich. I'm amazed they've got a massive sovereign investment fund. I'm amazed they've not thought of that yet. Um, Just pump it full of Harold Bratback and Raw Strand. It'd be amazing. (laughs) Rosenborg 1990s fans. The um, no, I think I I just think it, it it opens football up to too many complicating factors, and it also moves clubs away too far from where they're meant to be from what they're meant to be these are social institutions rooted in a place and we we're used to the kind of the internet the internationalism and the fact that you can have like an american hedge fund or a south african billionaire or whatever owning that team but i think when when it when a team becomes an arm of a state in some way however small i think i think that is inherently problematic but the other thing that i'm just baffled by and this is probably a more pressing question why why does saudi arabia want to buy newcastle what, what is the possible benefit of Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle? And I, it, it's one of those questions that people always say, oh, it's sports washing. But is there any evidence that that works? Does the Qataris are staging a World Cup for sports washing purposes, in inverted commas, I did the inverted commas, and all we've done for 10 years is talk about their human rights record. Sports washing is a dreadful idea. It doesn't work. I'll let Chinch take sports washing because I know it's absolutely his specialist subject. But yeah. in terms of the, just to play devil's advocate to the previous point, in some ways, at least we know where the money is coming from. People with vast sums of money find ways of navigating around the rules, don't they? So if the Premier League had a rule where a state or a country couldn't own a Premier League club, they'd just find a way of investing via a third party or several different parties to get that money to to where they wanted it to get to one way or another. And then you'd end up in a situation where the Premier League would have to be acting like, I don't know, like the FBI in, in picking through the paper trial to find out where the money was coming from. And that would be exhausting for everybody. Uh, we'll talk about sports washing in a minute and whether you need Lenore Conditioner to go with that. But should Newcastle fans, should Mike Ashley care more about who they're selling to and the fans who is actually buying their club? Should, uh, should they say no? Can they say no? The pervading um, emotion at, at, at the moment seems to be, uh, amongst Newcastle fans, a desire to move on from the Mike Ashley regime. At any cost. At any cost. And it would, would also be suggested, I imagine, by many, that moving on from Mike Ashley is not just based on the opinion that they have of the man, but the opinion that they have of how he has used money to invest or not invest in the team. And so, therefore, if you're thinking about the alternatives to that. If you're trying to flip a coin on Mike Ashley, you want more money and you want more of that money to be spent on your team. And given that the Saudi Arabia Investment Fund and those two other partners 
PCP Capital and the Rubin brothers uh, coming in to launch this bid. Surely that, and we'll come on to talk about how the fans should react to this and whether they should consider their own their own club above all the uh, the greater context of this and the wider argument, is whether that is the most important thing. And therefore, because Mike Ashley's reign will end, they can say, almost wash their hands of any further complications that might come down the road. And that seems to be the approach most of them have taken, is the idea that, that, that from their point of view, the, the, the priority is getting rid of Mike Ashley. And I think that's com- completely understandable. And the, the sort of the line of defense beyond that is, look, the, the Saudi state is an ally of Britain. The governments do business together. We sell them weapons. You know, BAE uh, have to some extent kind of, uh, not bankrolled, but kind of BAE have, I suppose, benefited from the war in Yemen. That if, if the state of Britain won't object to the Saudis. Why on earth should some Newcastle fans? Why, why is it on them? And I think there's a, there's a lot of legitimacy there. And what Chint says about Ashley is a really interesting aspect of it. So that the Saudis are being criticised for their human rights record and questioned over their suitability for involvement in football, which is Jordan is healthy. And as I say, I think there's, there's, a, there's a natural line you can draw and say, look, if this is a, a state-run thing, then no thank you. That shouldn't be hard for the Premier League to do. Not least as it completely skews the competitive landscape. It's you know, it, it makes you think, right, what is the priority here? Is the priority in building a sustainable club or is it in having some sort of relatively short-term marketing stunt where you can say, right, actually, we own Newcastle, aren't we good? Which I'm not sure is how a club should, should be used. But the criticism of the, has been on the fans for not objecting strongly enough. And it's the same with Man City, the, which is the, kind of the, the ghost in the machine here. It's exactly the same with Man City. The, the criticism is, is of the fans for, for not kind of, objecting strongly enough or for being prepared to put their morals to one side or put their qualms to one side whereas really i wonder whether what we should actually be saying is is the premier league should be criticized for allowing this to be possible the the government should be under scrutiny for having links to these states if we if we all find their human rights record so problematic but also in this case ashley should be being criticized for saying for having this this asset of, of social and community value and saying, actually, do you know what? I will sell that to the Saudis because they'll pay, they'll pay the right price. That There isn't enough criticism. The fans can't stop it, obviously. But there isn't enough criticism of the, the whole nature of the system which allows this to be possible. Well, for, for a start, Mike Ashley is not that owner. There might be owners like that who would pick and choose who they would sell to. I'm not sure Mike, there are. I'm not sure there are. Well, no, no. I, I, was, I was trying to live in some kind of nirvana. But certainly, Mike Ashley is not the owner who is... Once somebody's met his asking price, he's going to be willing to accept that and he's not going to view Newcastle United as some kind of community asset that he is the current custodian of he just wants to get it sold and he wants to make a big big profit which is what he's going to do then there's that thing about well if our governments do business then why can't those countries invest in our Premier League clubs well yes certainly Premier League football clubs shouldn't be expected to abide by higher a higher moral code than the government of the country should be but I, I suppose Government and football are two very different things, aren't they? And, and the kind of compromises you have to make at government level are not the same as the kind of compromises that you have to make at national sporting level. But this is a further demonstration, following on from what we were talking about last week, of the pickle that the Premier League as a whole, and certainly a lot of Premier League clubs have got themselves into in terms of their cash flow. Yes, there is an awful lot of money that comes into the Premier League, but because so much of it disappears straight out of the door, they are continuously having to find new revenue streams. And 
that there's an element of them not clearly not being too bothered about what those revenue streams are. And I suppose Mike Ashley selling his football club, there's a buyer there, the money is right. Does he then pass on the responsibility and say, well, you know, I'm a buyer, they're a seller. The football, the, the Premier League do their fit and proper person test. If, if it's not right, then it's other people then step in to stop that sale going through. So is he, okay, he could have said no. He could have understood who were, in essence, buying the club and said, I, I morally don't agree with this. I'm going to pass that. I'm going to, I'm going to say yes to this, pass it on to the, the, the Premier League, and they ultimately make the decision with their tests whether this should go through or not. So is he kind of, again, passing that responsibility on to a, another party to make the biggest decision? Well, again, so the, the system as it stands means that Mike Ashley's perfectly within his rights to, to sell to the Saudis, because that's, that's, that's how, we, how it works. The Saudis are perfectly within their rights to try and buy, buy, buy a football club, because that's allowed. No one's objecting. No, you know, no one, there's no rule against that. They're not doing anything illegal. The only question really is whether the, the fans are like morally compelled to object to, to their club being so nakedly used for some other purpose. And that, that I think, is the one area that maybe the fans perhaps do deserve a little bit of not criticism but but scrutiny because you know that your club that you, you know the saudis are not in it just as abu dhabi, abu dhabi aren't in it just because they really want to win football matches there is a, there is another purpose at play and strictly speaking you can make this case of anyone who owns a, certainly a major club you know are fsg in it because they want to win trophies not really they're in it because they want they think at some point they can they can sell the asset and make money and that's that's no that's no purer motive than than Abu Dhabi's really, um, but with with cases of of states buying clubs, I just think it's such an obvious. It's a so obvious, and b it's that that the the interests of the fans and the owners that aren't necessarily aligned. If you if you're owned by a business, it is in that business's interests to be as good as possible on as small an outlay as possible, and each club will pick its how good it wants to be based on how on how large its small outlay can be so for newcastle sadly ashley chose wrong basically he chose that it, all all that what that he wanted was to get access to the tv money every year all that mattered was staying in the premier league whereas with with a state qatar or abu dhabi or saudi wherever it might be owning a club the interest is not necessarily in in alignment with what the fans want over the long term. It's a short it's a short term play, and that short term might be ten years, it might be fifteen years, it might be twenty years, but it's not a long term play to to increase the value of the asset as a whole. But equally, the problem is the system. It isn't. The, it's not that the fans don't object enough. The problem is the fact that the system allows all of this to happen, and nobody feels any qualms at all about doing it the Saudis don't Ashley doesn't the Premier League don't it's all kind of well this is how it works and this is how it is and this is all fine and that to me is the problem that football's had in terms of kind of consuming this absolutely unreconstructed undiluted sort of Thatcherite economics of of everyone is against everybody else all that matters is being the best you don't have any greater responsibility you don't have any greater responsibility to the collective whole that all that matters is that, that your team wins and has the most money and signs the best players and all that. Football has completely naturalised and internalised that logic. And its ultimate expression is that a takeover can go through where a left-leaning club, really, with a huge social conscience and a, a really collectivist ethos can be sold to a murderous regime. And nobody involved bats an eyelid, except a few journalists who say that maybe the fans should object. And that, that's the real kind of, the really extraordinary thing to me. 
Mike Ashley it seems to me is, is an interesting case because he tried to run it like an actual business instead of run it like um, a business with intentions to increase the PR value of a glo- global PR value of a, of a of a nation state or to uh, to emotionally invest in something because you are a supporter yourself. He he genuinely tried to run it like a business, and those who work in the sportswear uh, industry will say, and it is to the detriment of many things that aren't Mike Ashley, that he is a very, very successful and very good businessman in that area. Uh, now, clearly there'll be people at Sports Direct and, and lots of people who work for him that might disagree, but that, that is the, the opinion certainly of one other sportswear manufacturer. They, they, they do appreciate how good of a businessman he is in his sector. He tried to run Newcastle in that same way. And it's strange to say that that runs completely counter to anything that anybody would have wanted for that club. Even the neutral would have wanted Newcastle to not be in this rut that they've been for so long because of exactly everything that Rory just said about it being so important in terms of where it is geographically, important where it is that it's a one club city and important as well because of its community significance. But Mike Ashley genuinely tried to run a football club in a business where running a football club like a business runs completely counter to all expectations and all levels of success. Has it not been a successful venture as far as it will Mike be for Ashley, him? The businessman, it, was, he'll make 100 150 million on his on his on his purchase price, but, this, but obviously he's but put money in for the running of the club. But this is the problem, isn't it? That, that in a business sense, it's been a perfect success, and you, you can make a case that Mike Ashley's done quite a good job at Newcastle in terms of he's, they've mostly been in the Premier League. Whenever they've dropped out, they've bounced straight back. They've, they've earned X hundred million pounds in TV rights over that period. Their, their wage bill's quite low. He's not done anything stupid like in, well, in fact, no, I won't even make that a glib point. The one thing where he has without question failed is in, is investing in the infrastructure of the club. The training, you know, Benitez identified the training ground needed updating and stuff. The stadium is wonderful and is a cathedral, but could do with being modernised a bit. And he's not invested in in, in that sense at all. And the academy as well is, is something yeah. that actually the, the, the Saudis have said through um, Amanda Staveley is that, that that's one of the first things that they will see yeah. to invest in. And so there's there's areas around it where he's he's not run it like a good business, but in terms of in terms of kind of the the basic raw thing, he's probably done fine. And by his terms, he's probably done done fine. And I think one of the problems has been that he doesn't quite understand why he's been abused so much. Because in in Mike Ashley's world, he's done a good job. The problem is not just as the problem is partly that, like Steve says, he's run a business in an industry where running it like a business is not a recipe for success. But he's also run it like a very specific type of business. He's run it like a pile them, pile them high, sell them cheap business. He's run it like he runs Sports Direct with where there's little or no concern for worker welfare or the broader impact on society. He's not shown any of those elements of business. And again, the problem there is the system because that is what the Premier League rewards. It doesn't incentivize owners to be good owners. It incentivize it, because it's it has this ownership neutral stance. It has a sort of moral, morally neutral stance towards money and how it should be used. As long as there's money, that's all it cares about. That's that that's the root of the problem. Which is why, as far as other owners are concerned, Mike Ashley is probably quite praiseworthy in some in some senses. And it's why, when the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia wanders along with three hundred million quid in its pocket, they go, "Yeah, it's a great idea. Not a problem. Crack on." 
and that that is that's the the rottenness at the heart of it and it's the same rottenness that allows PSG to be owned by Qatar and the same rottenness that allows Manchester City to be owned by Abu Dhabi I know Chinch wants to get in and he's, he normally touches my leg to, to stop me speaking but I'm just I'll just want to quickly get the fan thing out of the way because from an idealistic point of view you know Rory has mentioned all of those voices that you would expect to object that so far haven't idealist idealistically you'd want it to be fan groups that were making a stance in these sorts of situations and it's kind of something that I found bewildering both about this Newcastle situation and the Manchester City one from a decade or so ago is that a lot of fans basically see it from the viewpoint of do you know what we have suffered for so long we have underachieved that we deserve this sudden injection of cash and to that end, we're not really all that concerned about where it's coming from because we're so desperate for, for success and we, are, we feel we're entitled to it that we are, we are able to see past whatever indiscretions there might be in the background because we want something to celebrate. And, and unfortunately, it's difficult to put yourself in the mindset of a fan of a different club because each group of fans is its own community with its own thoughts and its own aspirations. And if you are... A big club and a club that has lived in the shadow of other big clubs and has not achieved the level of success that you believe you should have done, then you must get to a point, and I can understand why you would get to the point where you feel like, well, that is the end game. That is the thing that you most desperately desire. And, and you, want, you want to see that money come into your club so that you have a chance of competing at a level that you believe you should have been competing at all along. And you can completely understand Newcastle fans saying, well, horses bolted. If the Premier League has welcomed the investment from any number of different people, including Abu Dhabi and Manchester City, then you cannot object to Saudi Arabia doing the same for Newcastle United. You're going to have to say that if Saudi Arabia aren't allowed to invest in Newcastle United to take over that club, then you're going to have to rule out any number of different things that have already taken place and clearly uh, impossible to turn around. The fans' point of view, the, the City fans, their view when the Abu Dhabi money came in and the Newcastle fans at this point, it, I presume it's different for the Newcastle fans because they really want Ashley to go. So is that the overriding, that that overtakes any kind of the, the, the moral issue who's actually buying your club. We want Ashley out at any cost. And you have to surely for the Newcastle fact, you be careful what you wish for because getting one guy out doesn't mean that the next owners that come in, everything's going to run smoothly. But, but clearly the, the feelings of the Newcastle fans towards their owners was very difficult than the city fans towards the owners that sold to, to Abu Dhabi. It's a very different fan situation. We'd have to say. Well, I think the other difference is that the city fans were, were almost the guinea pigs for this. So we'd, we'd obviously seen, external investment in English football from 2003 onwards when Abramovich bought Chelsea. And there'd been, there'd been some criticism of Abramovich, and there still is, for, for, for how he got rich and whether it's morally okay to celebrate the nature of his wealth, just there is, you know, there's no question that he profited from resources that were actually the property of the Russian people. Um, that, that was sort of a, it sort of bubbled under. But basically, Abramovich got a bit of a free pass. A lot of, there were journalists who, and rights organizations and um, I think to an extent people within within Russia and within kind of Ru Russian public life who who made us aware that Abramovich was not squeaky clean by any stretch of the imagination but in 2008 when Abu Dhabi bought Man City I mean a Abu Dhabi is a city-state in in the UAE and most people wouldn't have known a vast amount about the UAE in in the first instance 
And they certainly wouldn't have been sort of familiar with the idea that, that Abu Dhabi was actually the secret power. Everyone had heard of, of Dubai, but there'd have been an awful lot of people out there who didn't know that Dubai and the UAE were, were kind, of, kind of the same thing, that they were part of the same thing. Um, and they wouldn't have understood the relationship with, with Abu Dhabi. They wouldn't have known anything about the, the indentured labor, labor system. They wouldn't have known anything about the human rights record. City fans, I think, deserve a little bit of a free pass initially, certainly, for, for not objecting. Because who knew? Like, nobody, we'd never seen this before. It was, to- it was totally, totally new to all of us. The PSG fans get less of a free pass because by the time Qatar come along in 2011, I think, and by PSG, we'd been through it already with, with Abu Dhabi. But then I guess you can say different countries, different football cultures, all that. Um, Qatar was very clever in terms of not only buying PSG, but the rights to the French league. So it was in the interest of French football for the takeover to go through. I think where, where I have a problem with some City fans, and it's only really a very small section, is the, the fact that their support for Manchester City has, for some reason, become support for the state of Abu Dhabi. That they are, there's, there's a very small section of Man City fans who, who have been sports washed to such an, such an extent that they are now kind of outriders for... for Emirati foreign policy, which is just weird. It's just, I mean, we can dress it up in fancy, fancy language all we like, but it's just plain weird. Um, and oh, as, as more and more has come to light, as there has been more investigation into what Abu Dhabi are doing at Manchester City, I find it a little bit sad that, that those criticisms are just batted off as being the products of a biased media. I think that's nonsense. Um, Newcastle fans don't have that excuse. They know what they're being used for. And Saudi Arabia is is much more high profile than Abu Dhabi was in 2008. But the other thing that I think Steve touched on that's really important is there's a, an author called Neil Postman, whose work I would, I would massively recommend, who writes a lot about the nature of news. And I think one of the problems is there is a false equivalence between the sufferings of a t- football team and actual suffering. And that we, we lose sight. We may have covered this before. It feels a bit like we've covered this before. But we lose sight, because of the language we use around suffering as a football fan, we lose sight of the fact that that is not real suffering. That there is not a line that can be drawn between, say, Newcastle not winning the Cup since 1955 and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Those are not the same level of thing. That's not, you don't have, because your football team is not, has not been successful, is not, does not mean you have a right to be like, well, actually, you know, I can't afford to have morals because, to be honest, my, my team's not won the Cup since 55. That doesn't work. But, but because of the, the prominence we give football and the way we talk about it, I think it's really easy to forget that, that those things are unrelated, that there is no similarity between them, that there is no reason that you, that because your football team's not winning, that you can abandon your morals or don't need to have moral yeah. principles. So that, that is not a legitimate thing to say, well, look, at the moment, all that we care about is investment in the squad. That is not how you should be looking at this at all. And I do think, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in the reaction from Newcastle fans because Newcastle fans are, for the most part, really socially minded, really proud of their city. They tend to be quite local. There's not a vast Newcastle diaspora. And they're very, collecti- very collectively minded. And I find it odd that they have been suckered into this way of thinking that is imposed from above on them. And that's the one area that I think it's legitimate to criticise the Newcastle fans. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it does blow apart a little bit, that argument, doesn't it? That sort of the entitlement of a fan to feel as though they deserve success because they haven't had it for, for so long. Uh, but that is, unfortunately, when, when, a, when football becomes so important to you and, it, and is so important to your city, which is particularly true of Newcastle, certainly as true of, of Newcastle as anywhere else in the country, then it is understandable, if, if not agreeable, to see how those lines have become so badly blurred. And the, clearly the priority for them, if they are saying, 
I don't care about any of this stuff because my team is going to get 100 million pounds spent on players. And uh, the, the, the idea that kind of the fantasy element of who's it going to be and who the manager might be if Steve Bruce isn't that man, then, you, then, then, then that, is, that, that does create endorphins. That creates excitement. That's, that, that is living in a land where you weren't able to pr- prior to that. And so there is a fantasy element to it. But that, if your priority is that, is that what, what can we say to a Newcastle fan to mitigate that? Do we Nothing. tell them about Jamal Khashoggi? And do we, do we say that Newcastle fans, listen, did any of you complain about Anthony Joshua fighting, fighting in Saudi Arabia when he fought Andy Ruiz Jr. for the second time? Do, how do we mitigate this sense that the priority is their club succeeding and they do not care about anything else? All you can do, and it's, look, it's, it, ultimately it's up to, Newcastle, it's up to, to individuals. Like if, if, you, if you are more bothered about Newcastle signing players or Newcastle potentially being successful than you are about human rights in the Middle East. That's fine. That's your call. That is entirely up to you. But equally, if there are people out there who feel it is important in the face of a fairly brash and craven attempt by a state to in some way launder its reputation, again, in a way that I don't think works, I don't, I don't understand why countries keep doing this when it, it is so very obviously counterproductive, um, then there are just as what's important to you is kind of the success, the success of your football team at, at whatever price you're prepared to pay for that then don't be astonished that there are people out there who think that actually what's more important is saying look this is clearly a sports washing project so what we're going to do is make sure that as many people as possible know what they are trying to cover up that's that's just the way it works like other people have different priorities to you and that's fine like so n- no judgment at all if Newcastle fans want to feel feel okay with within themselves and it's a, an individual choice of of saying right well actually do you know what what's I, I am prepared to look the other way to that um because i want my team to be successful other people will not have that view and you, we all just have to accept that we spoke um earlier on um regarding a correspondent that we had about our football conversations pods that we did um what role does the does the local media the chronicle in newcastle and those those podcasts and those blogs and everything that we're speaking about with Arsenal what role should they play because how are they how are the Chronicle covering this are they just factually telling the story about the, the machinations of a takeover are they are they bringing up these these uh, kind of elements of discussion that we're having there's a piece in the Chronicle at the moment about what sports washing is is and why it's been mentioned in in connection with Newcastle um the, the, the fans, I, I think, I don't, I mean, I don't listen to a lot of like Newcastle specific podcasts, but the fans, are, I'm sure, are discussing it. And that's all that you can hope for. That as long as, as long as it's been discussed, no one is in, the only people who can stop it are the government or the Premier League. No one else can stop it. Because, I mean, I guess Ashley, if he had a sudden attack of, of kind of moral outrage, might pull the plug. And the one thing that I would say about all of this is that we, we still haven't seen the paperwork. We've still not seen them holding the scarf up. The best takeovers are the ones you do not know about until they have happened. The takeovers that, that are trailed and trailed and trailed in the media either tend not to happen or tend not to be successful. It's not a, it's not a good sign that this has been so dragged out. It might be necessary because of the way Ashley works, but it's not... It wouldn't fill me with confidence. A number of bids as well. So yeah. it's been dragged out for a number of years mm. and they've come back and back and back. Well, Amanda Stavely has at least. Yeah, and Amanda Stavely's tried and tried and tried to get a deal together with lots of different parties. I think at one point it was Dubai that she was she was working with. And then there was another 
and there was at least another there was at least another one that also involved the Ruben brothers that's not great she's tried several attempts to buy football clubs they they haven't worked yet there's some debate over how influential she was in in putting the city deal together she was involved but how crucial she was you get different answers from different people um so I, for it, it's if I was a Newcastle fan, that that would be giving me pause for thought as well. That when Man City got taken over, literally the first you heard of it was that was was the presentation it was Suleiman Al Fahim on the on the pitch. That was the first you heard of it. FSG when they bought Liverpool, who've broadly been quite good owners for Liverpool, with the occasional fairly regular misstep, came out of absolutely nowhere. They were just there was a court case. They were running Hits and Gillette were trying to sell the club, or the club was being sold from Hits and Hits and Gillette. Suddenly FSG appeared and had it. You, the best deals in the, in these yeah. circumstances are not trailed extensively in the media. Um, but yeah, I, I think all the fans can do is make sure they're interrogating why they think what they think. And I, I suspect that out there in the kind of the broader world of Newcastle fans, that, that will be happening. They are powerless to stop it. The only people who can stop it are the government or the Premier League. And they won't because they are both imbued with the same morality of all that matters is that there is money. The time, if this does go through, the timing of it is really interesting, isn't it? Because it would seem like a, a overall bigger picture would seem like an uncertain time to be getting involved in in sport anywhere in the world at any level, because we simply don't know in which direction we're heading in the short term. But I guess if it does happen, you can see from, from the point of view of the investment that it would potentially be a good time because we talked already. And in fact, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the Manchester United boss, has already dropped a hint that they will see the next transfer window whenever that opens as being a good opportunity for, for clubs with reserves of cash to invest and get good value for their money. So in the longer term, Saudi Arabia and, and the, the fund that they're using to invest in Newcastle might just see this as being, well, hang on, if, if we're paying the agreed price, our next stage of investment in terms of investing in players is likely to end up costing us less money now than it, it would do at any other time because there are unfortunately going to be those clubs feeding on the carcasses of others once we come out of the other side of this current hiatus. I'm assuming it's just a little bit less of an issue for a sovereign wealth fund worth 300 billion when you're spending an initial 300 million and then potentially another 100 over the next two transfer windows on players, let alone the kind of infrastructure money that they will want to and need to spend as well. So if you're a Mike Ashley and you're trying to get money back and you're trying to think about the value of the business that might be something that you go through but if you're Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth investment fund you do you really care about the the, yeah, of course, the, the fact course, that the, 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 you... the TV, deal, TV deal might go down next time if, if you're in it not necessarily to make back your money you're in it for other reasons in addition to perhaps making some sort of money and the value of a club will go up regardless over time you must kind of assume that at least but if you're if you're saying to yourself well, I've got this much money and I'm spending it for reasons other than trying to get return on my investment, then, then, then do you really care when you do it and whether the, the, the TV deal might, might plummet? But however much money you've got, Hugh, if you can invest 200 million over two transfer windows rather than 300 million and get the same return for that investment, then, then you're bound to do it in the same way as, you know, you could afford to buy clothes full price, but you generally get them in the sale. Oh, yeah. Or... <laughs> Or you could still or spend three hundred million or and get better. You spend three hundred million and you get better players. Yeah, that's the other way of looking at it. But I think there's a flip side to that, which is Mohammed bin Salman owns a painting that's worth more than Newcastle. So why? I've read this. What is? I've read this somewhere. Oh, was what it not the Dali one that went for four hundred million? The, oh right. He, that may be a forgery. 
This is this is my goal in the kind of... in the Manchester derby. <laughs> yes, no. you you oh, holding up just... five. <laughs> <laughs> Some... But why? Why running a football club? You, t- you you can't make any money out of running a football club. Not by the not not by the scale that they're that they're used to. No one does that. It's a lot of effort when you can just if you want an asset for that money, you want to invest it in something. There's a lot of other stuff you can buy that's a lot less effort and that's a lot less controversial. So that that's why you have to ask why are they doing this? What is in it for the PIF, the Saudi sovereign fund? that makes any sense it doesn't and all you get in return for it is loads of people saying what about your human rights record it's a really really weird idea that that we don't i think we don't ask enough like what what are they doing this for saudi arabia like other regimes in that region need to diversify their portfolios don't they their their primary income stream is not going to last forever and they've been working to the wolf of wall street there bloody hell <laughs> say that again working... steve about their portfolio that was i've done it once already Chinch. i've done it once you've had it you, you, you have to pay extra for the information more than <laughs> is you know, they, they need to find other ways of of generating revenue and investing their money and and make and you mike ashley has demonstrated with newcastle that you don't have to invest in the club to make money out of the club so that would seem to have, have set a fairly enticing standard for, for others who've got even deeper pockets to follow. And unlike, as Rory mentioned, which is really interesting, is that you know, we weren't really aware too much of Abu Dhabi before they invested in Manchester City. So what they've inadvertently done and maybe the thing they weren't prepared for was that the light would suddenly be shone upon them and questions would be asked about what was going on within their domain it certainly I guess, doesn't doesn't happen in their own countries that's for sure well exactly whereas on a global scale that, that saudi arabia in terms of the the less than savory aspects of what goes on there are already pretty well known so in terms of damaging their reputation by buying a premier league club and inviting scrutiny well that that isn't going to happen they're not going to get worse press out of owning a premier league club than they're already getting yeah you could you could consider yourselves bigger than all of that and able to bulldoze your way through any any sort of negative um press coverage you get chinch just finally i want to ask a question about a player's point of view do they care where their money comes from where where it's uh, emanated from and eventually ends up in their pockets and and spent on Um, ridiculous cars like mm. fiat's and stuff Fiat. Uh, well, I was never in a position um, to go to through something like this. But, <laughs> to, yeah. to afford a Fiat. <laughs> but fans and fans and players, I, I, I do tend to think there might be kind of 30, 40 percent of them thinking, ah, you know, they, they've heard the stories, they know the background. This isn't necessarily a good thing. But there's 60, 70 percent saying, you know, my wages are going to go up, or we're going to be signing better players, and so we'll kind of, in a way, know what's going on, but ignore it because of the benefits to them personally. And is that just, again, is that human nature? But again, we've got to look at how fans and players react now because fans and players reaction when the Abu Dhabi money came into city, as Roy was saying, we've been through all that before. We know why sovereign states are doing this and putting big money into football clubs. So those questions have to be asked of the players and the fans, you know, you might know the background, they must know the background to the, to the people that come into their club. They're bound to do because it's their club. And they'll have an interest in it. The players, their futures, they'll want to know the money's going to continue to roll in, that contracts are going to be there for them. So they'll know. But it's what you're willing to do as a player, say, I'm not signing this contract because of the situation with the owners I'm, I'm going. If you're a very good player, you have the, the option to do that and the opportunity to do that. But a lot of players don't. So in a way, yeah, you might 30% of you disagree, but the other 70% will say, well, I've got a job to do. And sadly, 
where that money is coming from. Again, it's not, it's, it's not my decision to do this sale. There are kind of blocks in place to stop it if it was really wrong. But if it goes through, um, again, there's, there's, there's ways and means of bypassing the, the Premier League checks and obviously the government could step in at any point. But again, presumably how this is being put together, it, it looks like it could possibly go through. If fans, all they can do is walk away, support another club, players go and play for somebody else. But I just don't see that happening. I suppose the irony is, is that the more successful a club uh, becomes under owners, uh, the more scrutiny those owners will get. Manchester City might have had the free pass over the first few years, but then uh, the more successful they became, the more likely it was that there'd be a uh, bigger scrutiny. And who knows how long it'll take Newcastle under these new owners to potentially reach that level. And if they do, uh, the, the scrutiny will get even more intense. And one thing you can be absolutely guaranteed of is that the um, Premier League's fit and proper persons test or the owners and directors test will indeed uphold the reputation and image uh, of the game. Apparently it takes about four weeks. So in about four weeks from now, uh, we may well find out that that is indeed uh, being passed. Um, Thank you, everybody. It's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is an Andy Tales a tale from his playing days or indeed his broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel-worthy details removed. And Chinch, uh, today's soccer story comes in response to a question. It is sent in by John Wood, not the Buffalo. John says this, guys, even before sheltering in place, I started to listen to all the pods from the beginning and I'm a big fan. Because I've been listening to the old pods and they are fresh in my mind, I've picked up on some things that Andy has talked about from his playing days. He originally relied on his almost superhuman physical gifts when he started at Manchester City. And by the time mm. he moved on to Everton, where he single-handedly won an FA Cup, he had learned the game. He then combined both of these to become the only seven-time English international on this podcast. So I wanted to ask Andy this. If you were playing today and at your peak, physically and mentally, if such a thing was even legal, he says, which active Premier League manager do you think your style of play slash strategic brilliance would you thrive under in the current league? And whom do you think you wouldn't work out playing for and why? Hope you're all safe and social distancing. That's from John Wood, who you remember is the fella from Huntington Beach in California of the US of A. It, well, it's something that, that all former players do. They, they look at the current stock of players, people who play in their position and say, well, you know, how much of that player is me? I, I like to think of myself, I, I did see myself as, as something of a Leighton Baines. I now, I, I don't know again whether I'm looking through these rose-tinted glasses, but I see a bit of, quite a lot of Ben Chilwell in the way... I didn't play in the same way because the game wasn't played in the same way. But that's the hairdo. Type of, it's the hairdo. The hairdo's tremendous. The, the slicked hairdo's tremendous. So clearly, Brendan Rodgers. Uh, Rory, you can disagree with me at any point here. Steve as well. Uh, Brendan Rodgers would be a terrific fan because of the way that Leicester set themselves up with their fullbacks flying forward, which, of course, I, I love to do. And I also like to do a bit of defending as well. So at, at appeal, I can't see Jose Mourinho liking me at all. Just on a personal level, I think he'll hate me. But uh, Brendan Rodgers, I've chatted a few times to Brendan, and he's, he's got that look in his eyes as if to say, you know, if you were 25 years younger, there's a chance you would, you would get in ahead of Chilwell. I can, he doesn't have to say it. I can just see it in his, in his little body language and in his eyes as well. So uh, where would I be? I was at my peak. I did have a peak. Seriously, I had a peak. It was 27, 28. I remember Glenn Hoddle talking to me when I was wearing just a towel coming out of the showers after an England session saying, by George, that's my middle name, but he didn't know that. He said, by George, you're, in, you're, a, you're a fine physical specimen, putting words in his mouth. But he, what he meant was, clearly, I was, I was very different 
than the, the rest of the men, naked men that he'd seen in his life. And um, so clearly that was probably when I was at my peak. I was unstoppable. I, I really was. I had the, the confidence of my teammates and of, of Joe Royal and Willie Donachie. And I, I, was, I was unstoppable. I really was. So I, I think at that point, I was better than Ben Chilwell, who I see as probably, probably the, in my view, the, the best left back in the Premier League. Is the best left back in the Premier League not Andy Robertson? No. Okay. It's Ben Chilwell. Did you not hear what I just said? Yeah, fine, fine. When just, I said Ben Chilwell, Chinch. did you hear Andy Robertson? Just Andy Robertson Chinch. is good, but he's not as good a defender as Ben Chilwell. Ah. So I think it's interesting that what was a relatively straightforward question became a story about Glenn Hoddle casting an envious eye over your physique. That's, that's very cheap. These things happen. They happen, Rory. Don't be... I'll take my top off for you at any point. I'm going to be nice about you now, Chinch. Don't make it, don't make it weird. Um, mm. I think probably apart from Robertson and maybe Chilwell, you can probably make a case that Chinch gets... Pete Chinch gets in any Premier League team, doesn't he? No. At the moment? Oh, at the moment. At the moment. City, City don't really have a proper left back. I'd be great for City. Pep would love uh, me. Would he? I don't, would Pep love me? Yeah. You'd be, so. you'd be the slightly more conservative... He likes to have one really adventurous fullback and one slightly more conservative. You'd be the slightly more conservative one. I can see you replacing Luca Dean at Everton. Similar, st- similar skill sets. Mm, he's not uh, Luca Dean's pants. I'm sorry. You're better than Sayad Kalasinac. Uh, this is not United. high praise. This is, this is just turning into a revelation about the dearth of quality <laughs> know, suddenly, in the Premier League. Where are all the left-backs? Do you think you could do a job, the Luke Shaw job of playing, playing left-sided centre-half in a back three? What you did for England? I did that, I did that for England, actually, <laughs> against uh, Cameroon in... Uh, in a, an icy November evening, and we gave them a 2-0 thrashing. I think I touched the ball about 10 times. I think I've told this story. But yeah, no, Glenn Hoddle yeah. saw that, saw that. The wing-back system was, was his thing. I started off as a wing-back, and he said, for longevity in this team and in this system, that's where you, because you give the, the three centre-halves balance. But then I think I've told the story when he took me out practising my right foot, and it was just yeah. embarrassingly bad. And then going- he realised, ah, I, I think we better leave that position for you. Just play as a wing-back or a full-back. It, it not only got weird in the middle, um, talking about a naked chinch, it then got into uh, telling the old I wasn't naked. Again. I wasn't naked. I had a towel. Pretty I had much. a low-slung towel. Uh, thank you. If you have any questions for chinch that will turn into soccer stories that uh, relate to either him being fully clothed or indeed fully naked, uh, send them to <laughs> menu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you, Stephen, Andy and Rory. And thank God for that towel. And to you all for listening as well. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. You can go and sit down now, Chinch. Yeah, but I just realised you're saying you've got to stand up for an hour. When I commentate, and I do co-commentate quite a lot in my job, I stand up for nearly two hours, Rory. Twice <gasps> as long as I've been standing here. Do you not have a seat? No, no, I stand up when I commentate. I, I can't sit down. It's, no, I stand. The reason he doesn't sit down during commentaries is because he used to sit down next to me during radio commentaries, and his fat knees used to knock out all the electrical items yeah. from their that, plugs. Oh, yeah, that, I remember yeah. that being a problem for him, yes. <laughs> But there are some, and I find it a bit disconcerting when I work with commentators who like to sit down. Martin Tyler likes to sit down, name dropping. Rob Hawthorne likes to sit down. I like to stand. And it's a little bit uncomfortable when you're getting into a commentary and you're towering above someone who's sitting down. The dynamic's a little bit odd. So I work with a lot of the guys, the younger guys that I work with, not saying Rob and Martin are old, but they are. The younger guys, <laughs> Gary Weaver, Daniel Mann, Bill Leslie, they're all on their toes. We're all on our toes, jousting as we commentate. It's, it's how it should be, Stephen, isn't it? Tell me. That's well, on, up on their feet alongside you. Steve's got to be a sitter. On a, no, no, a I'm a stand. I'm definitely a stander because the problem is on a yeah. gantry, on a, on a gantry where your monitors and your equipment is, is normally on quite a high table. 
and the chair that has been left for you is generally a chair of regular height. So if you sit on the chair, there's a very good chance that there's large portions of the pitch you can no longer see. Which, is, it, I, as I understand it, is a drawback in commentary. Well, it, does, it, it can have an impact on your ability yeah. to give an accurate assessment, yes. Well, what's yeah. happened with me, I've, I, clearly I've got to a point where my reputation and standing within the co-commentary community is so large that the technicians that look after us, they know now, do not put a table higher than 600 millimetres. Because I want a low table, so if I did want to sit down, if my knees gave way, I could sit down and still see over the monitors. But these new lads coming into the game, they don't have the power to actually lay down the law like I do. So, yeah, 599 mil is as high a table as I want come match day. Thanks for describing me as one of the new lads, Finch. Much appreciated.